And if you have your Bible, I'll invite you to turn to Exodus chapter number 3 this evening. We're talking about the life of Moses, and the more I study Moses and his life, the more appreciative I am of who he was and what God did with him. And and I remind you that uh, probably in the whole of Scripture, and I think I could leave out the word probably and be absolutely correct, but I throw it in just in case there's something I've missed. Most likely, nobody was communicated by God himself more than the man Moses. John Rice, who uh, evangelist John Rice, who uh, was editor of the Sword of the Lord for so many years, used to say, when uh, you find somebody who's got it, run with them and hope you get it. Now, he's talking about spiritual things. And he would say... If you find somebody who's got it, you run with them, and you hope you get it. So I say to you, I've been running with Moses, and I hope I get it. I hope I get everything that the Lord taught him. I hope it comes sort of bleeds down to me, and I hope I can be more like Christ and more godly and more everything that Moses began to be as he spent more time with God. I cannot read him without uh, reading the chapters pertaining to Moses without recognizing This is an unbelievable thing that the holy God of heaven would pick a man and communicate with him so directly as he did with Moses. I remind you, the book of Leviticus, almost, not all, almost every chapter starts with the Lord spoke or speaks or spake to Moses. uses different tenses sometimes, but it always ends up being the thing. God spoke to Moses. The fact of the matter is, for the number of chapters there are in the book of Leviticus, God is stated as speaking to him more than the number of chapters. So that means even though not every chapter did it begin with that statement, somewhere embedded in all the chapters there's a statement about God spoke to Moses. And the fact is, uh, I thought that was the end of it until I got into devotions and went over to Numbers, and then I got into Numbers and found out it starts all over again. And the Lord spoke to Moses. Just repeatedly did that. So the fact is, what you need to do is run with people to whom God speaks. Now, I'm not talking about extra biblical revelation. I'm talking about folks to whom have taken the scriptures and are running with it. You know, they know what the Bible says. They've read it. They've studied it. And they've heard been under teaching, under preaching. And they know what God has said. And they're obedient to it. Find yourself an obedient believer and walk in his footsteps or her footsteps. And that's exactly what Moses did in the process here because I believe much of what you'll read about Moses in the early chapters, you read about them because his mom and dad were serious. That's a key word, by the way. Serious believers. They trusted the Lord God and they did not fear the king when the Pharaoh said, we're going to kill all the male Hebrew children. We don't want them to multiply and we don't want there to be any more Hebrews. So let's kill all the male boys, babies, and that way we can stop the growth of this group of people. And the Bible says distinctively that his parents did not fear the king. In effect, we would say, they feared God more than they feared the Pharaoh. I say to you, that's where every Christian needs to get. And our generation following us would live like it. Why the generation behind us does not follow so well is because they've seen those 
inconsistencies in us. We talk about how we love the Lord and then we, we give in to things that really reflect against that. That we love the world more than we love the Lord. And our kids see it. Oh, they don't, they don't carry around a notebook like the pastor does and they don't flip it up and take out a pen and, and say, well, I noticed that mom and dad were inconsistent about this. They said this and then I noticed today they did this and I know that this isn't right. They, they don't do that. They don't take notes that way. They take notes up here and down here. And when they see an inconsistency, they know that something is missing here. Either what they say that God says is not true, or it simply is that mom and dad have a better plan. And then the next generation comes out confused. They don't know what to do. You know, mom and dad said this, but they did that. Mom and dad acted this way, but they said they believed this. The fact is that your belief system ought to dictate your behavior. And when it does, and it's that belief system drawn from the Holy Scriptures, your children will go walk like it. They'll walk like it. Moses didn't just happen to be a man that turned out to be one of the greatest men in all the Bible. He had two parents who feared God. And it was implemented in his life to set patterns so it would reflect the same thing. And I know that God put his hand on Moses before he ever got to the backside of the desert. And the Bible testifies to that. That Moses believed that God had put his hand on him to deliver the slaves of Hebrew people from Egyptian bondage. And he believed that. And that's why he killed the Egyptian. You know, he, he didn't understand why the Hebrews didn't accept him. Because he went out and had this... Egyptian killed. He was certain that God had his hand on Where would he have gotten that? He did not get that in the palace of the Pharaoh. You think the Pharaoh is going to teach him that he's come and somehow God has put his hand on him to deliver all the slaves in Egypt? Give me a break. There's only one source for which he could have gotten that. And even though he spent 40 years in the palace of the Pharaoh, as the Bible says, it was his parents and that which they had taught him that God used to convince him that he was under the hand of the Lord. So here we come to chapter number 3, and uh, he, because he killed that Egyptian, and I think partly because the, the next day after he killed the Egyptian, he goes out and sees two Hebrews fighting or fussing with each other, and he tries to intervene, and one of them says, you're not to judge us, you're not to lord over us. Who told you you were supposed to be the leader? Who said that? And I think, um, personally, I believe it was one of those Hebrews who went and told the Pharaoh that he had killed one of his own people. But that's neither here nor there. Here in chapter 3, and note if you would, chapter 3 of Exodus, verse 1, Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro. And by the way, as you read through uh, the story of Moses, you'll run into the name Ruel. And Ruel and Jethro are the same people. Some believe that... Uh, Ruel changed his name because he was a high priest or a priest of Midian. They believe he changed it to Jethro because Jethro is a much higher sustained name. That is, it's said, uh, um, some dictionary says it means more abundant, where Ruel didn't say that at all. It was a lowly name. It was what we would call a common name of Midian. Jethro was not. It was an elevated name. And so here in the text, in uh, we believe Moses wrote by was God's human 
instrument to write down what's in the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. And in doing so, he records this for us. And Moses says now, He kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even Horeb. And uh, mountain of God and Horeb are all Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is the, the place where the Ten Commandments came down. So these names uh, in the Old Testament are often found interchangeable. And as you read, you'll see that. So you'll say, well, I thought he said he was on this here. And, and then you say, well, I thought he was on that mountain. Well, many of the names are interchangeable, and this is the same mountain from which he did all those other, quote, special things. What's important about this is, out of chapter 3, we've just come out of chapter 2 and to indicate about Moses killing the Egyptian and then trying to settle a dispute between two Hebrews and uh, hearing that the Pharaoh was going to or was intending to kill him. He flees to this place, and it's where he meets Jethro's daughter, and he marries one of them. And uh, we don't get a lot of detail about that part of it, but we do know that in this marriage, somehow he was put over the sheep, and Moses led them to the backside of the desert. Now, it's interesting that uh, we know that the Bible divides Moses' life into three 40-year periods. We've mentioned that uh, repeatedly, and we'll keep on mentioning that repeatedly because that's the secret of understanding what God did with him. Many Christian people get antsy uh, when I was in um, Bible college. I can't tell you the number of young men who was getting discouraged because it was taking so long to get their studies in so they could go to become pastors or they could go to be missionaries or they could go into some other part of the ministry. And uh, they would oftentimes express that. And uh, they'd express it in chapel services. They'd express it if they got a chance to speak in some of the clubs at the Bible college. Uh, they'd express it. How, how, you know, I just don't understand how you waste all this time. And they'd often use the word, waste. Well, the thing about it is, uh, with men like Dr. Robertson, who led the Tennessee Temple when I was there, he uh, would make it very clear, no time spent preparing to do God's work is wasted. And if ever that were true, it was true about Moses in the backside of the desert keeping a flock of sheep. Because Moses is going to graduate from a flock of sheep to shepherd a flock of people. And maybe by the time he gets a hold of them, there will be 600,000 of them or up to a million, and some say two million. So right now, God's put him over a group of sheep on the backside of the desert, and my conviction is to teach him, prepare him, educate him spiritually. And so that if, uh, as he gets back there, as I said last time we were together, um, he'll just be watching sheep. Now his main responsibility, protect them, take them to new pasture when needed, Make sure they have access to water. Almost everything that the Israelites are going to face in the 40 years in the wilderness, Moses had to deal with when he kept those flock of sheep on the backside of the desert. Because we all know the stories about the water issue. In fact, it was over water that Moses does not get to go into the promised land. I, I find it absolutely amazing with the greatness of Moses and all that he did to help the Israelites get out from under bondage of the Egyptians, and knowing the promise that God had made to them that he was going to lead them to a land flowing with milk and honey, Moses never got to experience it. And only for one reason, just one, 
only for one sin, just one. Did he sin all the other times? Oh, I'm sure Moses sinned. He was a human being and he was in the flesh, so I'm sure he did. But the one the Bible brings to our attention is just simply one act of disobedience. Just one. Now, here's the catch. The closer you draw nigh to God, and the more that he infuses into you to understand his will, the more accountable you become. That's why sometimes God does some very drastic things in the lives of people that he intends to use. Sometimes those people have to go through some very, very dark valleys. Because if he's going to use them, he wants to prove them. He wants to test them. He wants to make sure their their metal is made of the right stuff. And sometimes he holds them accountable for a higher standard than he'd hold a common Joe. And he knows what the common Joe feels. He knows if the common Joe is saying to himself, Hey, look, I don't want to get involved in too much in ministry because I know you, I know you, you, there are certain things you can't do and there are certain things you can do and some things God will require you to do and certain things that you might want to do but he won't let you do. I, I understand that. And the common Joe would say, I, I don't want to do that. I'm just going to sit in a pew and enjoy the services, sing when we sing, stand when we stand, stand when we pray, sit down and go home and leave everything else to somebody else. Don't you worry a thing about it if that's your spirit. You'll never be able to think to do anything what God has in mind for you. God's not looking for the guy who just wants to barely get into heaven. And I'm not sure there's any such creature. Everybody gets into heaven the same way on the same basis. By the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and forgiveness of sin. You don't get in by the skin of your teeth. Nobody gets to heaven by the skin of your teeth. You got there by the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for you. And it's sort of insulting to me every time I hear people talk about, I just want to get in by the skin of my teeth. I I think the Lord of heaven and the God of heaven looks down at that and says, that's insulting to me. It's not the skin of your teeth. It's the blood of my son. That'd be like for you to go to a military funeral and uh, they were burying a soldier who had given his life and to try to uh, make sure that his detail carried out a certain mission and to make sure that this advanced the freedom that we were fighting for in that particular location around the world. And you go to the funeral and you look down at this soldier and you make some comment about the fact this is the shabbiest looking kid I've ever seen in my life. How did this guy go represent me? And then he gets blown up that's just ridiculous. Well, that's, that's pretty much saying that this guy's sacrifice doesn't mean anything. He's a poor dumb kid and made a dumb mistake and he paid a dumb price. He lost his life for the freedoms that you and I would enjoy. Then you imagine the Lord Jesus coming to this earth under the auspices and mandate of his Father, and, and he going to Calvary and dying on the cross for our sins, and somebody saying when he gets saved or when he pretends to be saved or when he projects that he's saved, he says and gives testimony of the fact he's going to heaven by the skin of his teeth. No, you're not. If you call Christ's blood on the cross the skin of your teeth, then that's how you're going. But I don't think that's very uh, complimentary. And I don't think that pleases the Father. And I certainly think it's an embarrassment for a believer to ever use it. So consequently, you look at the text and where 
Moses is on the backside of the desert. He's alone with God, and now God's going to deal, do some dealings with him. It's also interesting to me that um, his uh, learning sometimes uh, takes place, and that is the learning God has for a man who he's preparing for the ministry. It's uh, one of those kind of deals where he uh, gets him alone so he can really personally communicate with him. Um, what we were talking about in morning service about being uh, so busy and you don't have time to listen to God. And uh, we say we love Him, but we crowd in our schedules with stuff that are not as important as spending personal time, private time with Him. And as I said it this morning, I challenge you again this evening. I think this week you ought to set aside from your devotional time, and I think you ought to remind yourself what devotions are. Devotions are not just some legalistic idea of reading the Scriptures and having a word of prayer, and then you can come and say, hey, I had my devotions this week. Devotions indicate devotedness. Devotedness. And devotedness has the ideal of an object. Devotions is not based on your devotedness to the Scriptures. Devotedness is based on your relationship with Jesus Christ. Your devotions is to testify to you and to anybody who may know that you do it, that you are devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of your life. And you get up in the morning or you before you go to bed at night or at some time, some place, in some space during the day, you get alone with Him and you express to Him by your commitment to sin, to open the Scriptures, spend time in prayer, and you somewhere along the way say, Father, I just wanted to tell you that I love you. And I'm come here today to my devotions. I want you to open up this love letter from your to your home in heaven to me. And I want to understand what you expect of me. I want to know your will because I want to know fully what you expect. And I want to be a doer of the word and not just a hearer and for sure not just a talker. I want to be a doer of your will. I love you and I don't want anything to crowd this out. And so I've admitted to this devotional time. It's not devotion against in some kind of image we got about that. It's devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you do that and express that from the sincerity of your heart and not from the motivation of other people who ask you about it, but you did it because you love Him. You know, uh, um, as I mentioned this morning, duty says I should do it. Discipline says I ought to do it. Love says I love to do it. Devotion is to say, I love you, Lord, and I'm meeting with you because I love you, and I want to know your will for my life. So I say to you that that's where Moses is now. The Lord's got him on the backside of the desert, and nobody would doubt for a moment that he was not directed there. Because this same mountain, Sinai, is where he's going to have a lot of work done from the office. So God's obviously directing because this is going to be a familiar spot in his history. But what's important about it is this is a place where he can be still. Be still. Everybody in this room want to have a place in your house or your car or your garage or your shed in the back where you store all your, your yard equipment and gardening and whatever. You ought to have a place where you can be still and be private apart from all the noise and activity around you. And be alone with God. And some people are scared to death of that. You know, they they just are scared to be in a place where it's just you and God. And I say to you, that's about where Moses has been put and placed. And it's possible, not absolute, but it's possible. He was here alone, and his wife was not there with him. 
it would be an uncommon thing that she was there on the backside of the desert. That implies that it was not the normal camping place or tent land. So it's a real likelihood he was sitting back there on seasons of caring for the sheep, and she may have been back with her father at the um, what we call the home base. Whatever the case is, the Bible has uh, much to say about it. Let me show you something about it and point it out as we go. Look from where you are. You're in Exodus chapter 3. Look over a few chapters to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter number 14. In Exodus chapter 14, look at verse number 13. Exodus 14, 13. This is the case where the Israelites have left Egypt and... uh, they are now in a somewhat of a predicament because we uh, have the Egyptians following them. And uh, they follow up and um, they are caught between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army. And so in chapter 14 and verse number 13, the people are about to go nuts. Verse number 11 goes back in chapter 14 to said, and I call it the dead end. Because they said, that's the people speaking, they were sore afraid, verse 10 says, and the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord, and they said unto Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt thus with us? And then um, verse 12, they even talk about what they said before. Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. And uh, anybody probably could preach a sermon on what would be better. Would you rather die a free person and uh, have a struggle? Or would you rather die uh, an embondaged person and have much of your needs met, but have to serve as a slave. I'm a free bird. I like to be free. And in this case, they're complaining and saying, Oh, I know for 430 years or better, we cried unto the Lord to get us out of here. I know that. And then God got us out. He brought on Moses, and Moses led us out. We know that. But uh, look what's behind us. And Moses could have preached a sermon and said, You think... That God who worked in my life for 80 years to get me to the point where I would lead you folks out of Egypt. You think for a moment that God's going to waste all of these 80 years of my life where he we brought me out in a miraculous providential way. That he saved my life when the Pharaoh was going to kill all the male children. And he spared my life then. And he not only did that, but he put me inside the palace. And I was able to work from that point and get some direction about their education, knowing what they do and how they do it, what they think. And then I was able to go from there when God placed me on the backside of the desert, spent 40 years with God alone, as it were. And you think God wasted all that? So here comes the Egyptians. You think God's going to let them kill you? If he was going to do that, he'd do it to save himself a lot of time and let him kill you while you were down there. In Egypt, he could have preached that, but he didn't. But what he did say is what I think he learned on the backside of the desert. Verse 13, chapter number 14 of Exodus says, And Moses said to the people, first off, he told them to fear ye not, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show to you today. For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, ye shall see them again No more forever. Now let me tell you something. 
that kind of faith and that kind of statement that goes with faith does not grow out of some cheap shot generic devotional time. Here's a man not just saying that, look, God's going to deliver you. He said he was going to, and, that, and just understand that. And just, that's not what he said. He said, you get a good look at these Egyptians because God's going to kill every single one of them today, and you'll never see them again. And I'm sure they were saying, are you crazy? Look what's this above us. What's right out in front of us? This is the Red Sea. How you suspect we're going to get across there? We're thousands and maybe even at this point a million or so. How are we going to get across this sea and these guys are hot on our trail? How, how are we going to pull this off, Moses? I'm sure there was some thinking that. But there's a certain quietness in verse number 13 from Moses. He never seems to flinch. He never seems to get all bent out of shape. Now you just think about it. The whole Egyptian army is right on their trail. And they are sitting ducks because there's nowhere to run. You can either go into the water and drown yourself, or you can wait till they arrive and kill you. And yet Moses is as cool as a cucumber. By the way, this is a good point to tell you, there's cucumbers on the four-year table if you haven't gotten them again. So the point is, he's calm. He's quietened of heart. He has no, he has no concern whatsoever that this isn't going to work out the way he says it is. But then he adds this, which we don't have a record in scripture anywhere that God said he would do it. He says, take a good look at the Egyptian army because you'll never see them again. And sure enough, they didn't see them alive. They did see the bodies wash upon the shore the next day. And the Bible indicates that. Here's a man who had absolutely confident faith that God was going to deliver them, and somehow, some way, what he said was exactly the way it happened. I'm telling you, that's not, uh, that's not kindergarten faith. That doesn't come from just reading a passage in the morning, having a word of prayer, and getting your cup of coffee and heading out on the road. This is a guy who come to know God. And God came to know him, and not that God needs to know anybody. God knows everything, and so he knew Moses, but he wanted to impart in Moses those qualities that would be exactly what Moses would need to lead a bunch of rebellious people. And they certainly was a rebellious group of people. But look from where you are in Exodus 14. Look on over because it gets uh, more practical for all of us. Look, if you would, to Psalm 46. Psalm 46, and uh, the writer in Psalm 46, in verse number 10, says this. And by the way, the, the 46, uh, this, is, um, this is usually referred to, and I don't want you to get you off on a rabbit trail, but this is uh, usually referred to as a uh, Shakespearean uh, uh, psalm, because like the 46th word from the beginning is shake. And the 46th word from the rear is spear. And they call it the Shakespearean psalm. But what's important about it is in verse number 10 of this psalm, which is a masterful psalm, it's a great psalm, has a lot of things you could preach about. In verse number 10, he says, Be still and know that I am God. This psalmist is... Uh, speaking in a, in a terminology that relates to the people 
Because what Moses said was, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And the word salvation is the Hebrew word carries with it the, the deliverance. So in uh, Exodus chapter 14, he's saying, stand still and see how God delivers you. And he's the one, verse 14 says, he's the one who fights for you. He'll deliver you. Just stand still. And in a way that means not only stand still and that you don't move, but it also stands still and don't speak. In our language, we'd say to them, keep your mouth shut and just watch what God's going to do. That's what we'd say. So in Moses' case, he says, stand still, don't move, and don't say anything, and see the deliverance that God's going to bring. Here in Psalm 46, in verse number 10, it's not so. It's not about deliverance. In verse 10, it says, be still and know that I am God. That's a step further. Let's assume for the sake of this moment and using it in applicable terms that in Exodus 14, verse 13, the salvation, let's take it as it being salvation from sin and a salvation that gets you from earth to heaven on the basis of the Christ's death on the cross, his resurrection, and his finished work. So let's say, be still and see the salvation of the Lord. Hey, that would be one step toward eternity and being right with God. Then if you added this to that idea, be still and know that I am God, would be the step in growing and maturing in your faith where you get to know God so well that you would have the same kind of confidence that Moses had that whatever promise God has, you can rest on it completely. You could take it to the bank and you could cash the check because it has God's signature on it. And here's the deal. There are a lot of people in America, especially that's where the country we know the most about, obviously. There are a lot of professing believers in America. There are not many people in America who really know God. Oh, they know His Son in salvation, and you can do that. But they still don't know the Father. They don't know God in the sense that Moses knew God and had a depth of faith in him by virtue of his growing and maturing and accepting what his parents had taught him, uh, there are very few Christians go that far. And Psalm 46 is really an encouragement to all people, though it was written primarily to the Jewish people. It was to them that they get to know this God and get to know him well and, and get so wise in your knowledge of him that you have greater faith. You can watch Christian people and uh, observe what crises they go through and see how their faith wobbles or is firm based on how they know God. If you took God at His Word and it says that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose, then you'd have to believe that everything that happened in your life is for good. But I can tell you, I've sat in my office and talked with a lot of people over the 20 or 30 years I've been here who didn't believe that at all. But they had placed their faith in Christ and salvation. But they acted like this had come as a sprung surprise with God. Whatever this crisis was, was not something that was on God's calendar. And somebody wrote this in, and they were having to pay the price for it. Well, let me tell you, as I would tell them and did, 
There's not a sparrow that falls that He doesn't know it. There's not a hair of your head that does not grow and fall that He doesn't know it. He knows absolutely, unequivocally, everything that happens to you. You can go to the book of Revelation and take chapter number, oh, chapter 2 and chapter 3. And you just read about the seven churches of Asia. And one thing you will see repeatedly in those seven churches, in those two chapters, is he says, I know what you're doing. I know what's happening there. You name the church, and he says, I know. I know. I know these people are pretending they know me. They don't know me. And I, I know these people, they're, they're saying this, but that's not true. This is true. Seven churches, two chapters in the book of Revelation, and it's just loaded with the Lord saying, I know, I know, I know. And even with the case with the Israelites down in the bondage of Israel, Egypt, these Israelites, I'm sure, thought they'd been forgotten. 430 years? Goodness gracious. How could, how could this be that they would get stuck in slavery and, and all of a sudden, you know, start crying out to God and, and it's as if God had forgotten them. But one of the things he comes back almost immediately when they begin to really get serious and he gets serious about getting them out of there was he says, I know. I know. Let me tell you something and we'll close with this this evening is, uh, and we got a lot more to say next week, but the point is, I, I would say to you, what Moses took his confidence in God was a realization of 40 years with him on the backside of the desert that he knew every single thing that Moses was going to be facing. And something of everything that he faced on the backside of the desert somehow would play into his learning, preparing for leading a flock of people out of slavery to a land flowing with milk and honey, like a green pasture with water. You're going to have the best of the best. But Moses, it's going to be up to you to exercise faith in me to get them there. Because this is going to be one of the hardest things you have ever done in your entire life. But you need to trust me. And I say to you, the 40 years on the backside of the desert was God's taking Moses in a way that he would uh, unequivocally and absolutely trust God beyond anything anybody to this point had ever subscribed to, undertaken, believed in. Moses takes this whole thing of faith to a whole new level. And I say to you that it's a kind of issue that encourages my heart on many fronts, and one of them is simply this. I want to get to know God so well and so completely by reading His Word on a daily basis and spending time in prayer with Him that I trust Him more than anything in all of the world. No matter when the storm clouds of problems come, I want to know in my heart of hearts and I want to behave like this is in the framework of His will. And I accept it. I uh, could give you some illustrations of that that have taken place in the last three or four years, but I'll hold those. But I'm just here to tell you 
when you get to a point where you could watch and see a several hundred, maybe several thousand or several hundred thousand of soldiers in the back of you and you see something ahead of you that you seem to be as absolutely impossible and yet you turn and say to those around you, fear not, just stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Understand in that case, it may not be that you get out, get away without a scar and a skin and a bloody nose. You may take it on the chin. But you ought to be to the point, if you get it on the chin, if you bloody your nose, if you get a bad scratch, you know full well he's just as in charge as he would be as when the Israelites walked across the Red Sea on dry ground. If he allows it to happen, you can be assured it was not a mistake on his part. He has a plan for it. So when... uh, circumstances come into your life which are just disheartening and discouraging, you need to look up and say, hey, I've learned to trust him. I don't have any fear about this, that he'll take care of it. He'll work his will, and he'll be glorified in this. Do I have to like it during that time? Nope. I, I think Moses was unhappy to see all those Egyptians. Now, maybe the Lord had already told him they're going to go after you, so be ready when they top the hill, and you see all these soldiers. Don't get scared and run the other way. Just... Stand still. Stand still. And one of the hardest things for people to do, and people of faith to some degree are no different, our tendency is to run, you know. I think that's why he said stand still. Don't run. Because most often you run in the wrong direction. As somebody told me, and I think there's truth in it, that when uh, people get lost, they pick up the tempo of how fast they're running. Now, that just won't do you any good, because if you're lost, you're not going to likely find your way out by just running, you know. And yet, in the Christian life, we ought to know the Father well enough to know that if something's come into our life, it had to come through His hand. If it came through His hand, this must be the will of the Father for my life at this moment, and I accept it on the basis of faith in Him. That's how much we should trust Him. Trust Him when you can't see where it's going to lead you, and what it's going to get you, and even to see if you're going to get through this crisis. Maybe this is the time he's going to take you home. But even if it is, you have so much confidence in him that your faith would never wobble. You wouldn't, wouldn't talk to a friend about it and say, I, I thought the Lord would deliver me. I thought the Lord would. You just simply say, the Lord's will is be done. When, when Job lost so much of what he had, family included, He said, the Lord giveth, and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I would hope the same statement would flow from your lips in the greatest crisis you ever faced, simply on the basis of you being still and coming to know God better. And I I pray that it's true in my life as I face my years of aging. I know there'll be circumstances out there that are not going to be pleasant. I accept that. So I just cast myself early upon him and say, you do with me whatever pleases you. Because I am not my own. I have been bought with a price. Therefore, I'm to glorify God with the life he gave me. And I think you'll never do it better 
than when you unequivocally trust Him as Moses trusted Him. So I hope tonight that that's what you'll set before you, and I hope you'll do it. If you'll stand with me, please, we'll have a word of prayer, and you'll be on your way home. I want to thank you for your attention, your time, and I pray that it was an investment and that you can take it home with the music that we sang tonight, the testimonies you've heard, and those reports and things from God's Word would be a blessing and a help to you from this hour forward. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for your greatness, your wonder that your works that you've performed are beyond our comprehension. And yet you have stated frequently and faithfully in your word that uh, what you want from us is just our faith in you, taking you at your word. And faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And I pray tonight that you take this message that's been brought to our people through the truths that are found in the scriptures. And I pray that our faith would be increased and would be enhanced. And I pray that we would trust you unequivocally. No matter what we face, I pray that we can glorify you in it by expressing our faith that you never make a mistake and the judge of the universe will always do right. So Father, help us to trust you that way and help us to rest in that trust in such a way that you'll be glorified by our attitude, our actions, and I pray that we can bear a great testimony for you and the salvation you've given us even in the worst of times, not just in the best of times. Thank you for our people, our members, our visitors, our friends. I pray your blessing upon them all and give them now safety in getting home. Give them a good rest and give them a great week. And may we have in our devotional life this week expressions of our love for you. And may we grow in grace and knowledge of you. And as we do, may our love grow deeper, stronger, and wider. In Christ.